You're listening to the Gateway Franklin Church Podcast. To learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, including our service times here in Franklin, Tennessee, visit us online at gatewayfranklin.com. And now, here is this week's message. I grew up watching Sesame Street. Sesame Street launched when I was a little, little over five years old. That was one of my favorite segments of which one of these things doesn't belong. You know, we've been in a foundational series out of a passage of Luke, and actually we've been, Matthew 6, we've been unpacking these first practices, these first foundational practices. Um, and Jesus talks about fasting. One, he's teaching, right? So he's talking about, can bring me down just a little bit, Steve. I don't feel like I can talk loud. Because um, <clears throat> I want to talk loud, and I don't. Um, so he talks about fasting, he talks about praying. He talks about giving. So when you talk about foundational spiritual practices, it's the one most people would feel like it doesn't belong, right? It's too earthy of a thing. And yet Jesus is teaching, so he's telling us the importance, the foundational place of the word. He actually teaches in order giving, prayer, fasting. I've taught it in reverse order just to kind of match what, I was, what we were doing, we we're fasting, and then uh, we talked about prayer last week, and then today we're going to talk about giving as a first um, spiritual practice. And, and actually, to do it, you kind of have to get into the big shoes um, to do it. So here's the passage. Here's a foundational passage for the whole series on Rock Solid, and um, it's in Luke 6, 46 to 49. I've read it out of a different version every week. Today, I'm going to read it out of the New American Standard. Um, it says, now, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I'll show you with, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And, there went, and when there was a flood, the river burst against the house, and yet it could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. And the river burst against it, and it immediately collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Jesus teaches this, or at least it's recorded in Matthew's gospel and also in Luke's gospel. Here are the five foundational truths that I unpacked from that message. First is that Jesus defines relationships by actions. Jesus defines relationships by actions. He's, he's equating, you, you are identifying me as one position in your life, and yet because you're not actually following what I'm saying to do, these things are incongruent. I, I can't be Lord, I can't be Lord if you're not following my direction. Second is that rock-solid foundations take deep, deep digging. They take, take deep digging. So myself, throughout the course of this series, I've thought, what are the things that block my hearing and obeying? What are the things that block my hearing and obeying when I know and it's illuminated to me through the word or through some other measure that God would use, the spirit to bring the truth to my life? What is it that's blocking my obedience? The third uh, foundational truth I unpacked from this passage is floods happen to everyone and they cause real damage. So the, the, the piece that I've put myself through in terms of evaluation is, in my life, what were the ways and what was the damage done in the times in which I was not following the direction of God? 
Floods come to everyone. They do real damage. Where has there been damage done in my life? It doesn't mean it's permanent damage, but what damage has been done? Because I decided one way, my way, over the way that God had outlined. The fourth foundational truth is, truth is that lives rise and fall based on foundations. So Christ is identified as a rock and as a foundation throughout Scripture, all right? So he is our rock, and my life will rise and fall based on how I treat him that way. If I treat his words and his ways as foundational truth, and I build my life on them, my life will rise. If I build my life on my foundations, the things that I choose, the things that I parse out as worthy or not worthy of God's words, then fall. And the fifth, the one that I moved into these first actions of fasting and prayer was foundations are built with first actions. They're built with first actions. God was the first giver. God, who came, he, he is the one who came first. Everything else that flows out of us become us following his lead, things he has already led in. So today finishes our fast. If you fasted kind of incongruence with, you know, the, um, the 21 days here, maybe you fasted a portion of this. Maybe you started late and you still have a few days left, or maybe you started early and you've been done for a few days. What I have prayed for you specifically and what I will continue to pray over you specifically out of, out of this fast was the three rewards that I identified in my life and I can back them up scripturally of what happens when we fast before God. Here are the three ways I'm praying for you and we'll do this all year long. Clarity of your identity in Christ and the vision he's given for your life. I, this, so many things erode over the course of a year, erode my identity in Christ and my value in Christ. Things that happen, they just do, and it just beats against the house, and it can erode the soil up against the house. A fast, a fast resets me for the year, and that's how I've prayed for you. I'm also going to pray for you, and will continue to do so on clarity, the word I made up, of obstacles and opposition. That the things that seemingly are in front of you putting force against you, I'm praying that God would clear those paths, or at least clear the path that he will walk with you through it. The third is for encouragement, for movement and advancing. These are the things that fasting does for me. It gives me a clarity of who I am in Christ. It clears up the vision that he has for me in my life in general, a direction specifically. Um, it puts me in a different position to follow God through clear paths and watching him move things that I couldn't have moved on my own. And when I hear clearly from God, generally speaking, I move quicker with God. All right, so those are the things. Now, last week was, was Ice, Ice Sunday. And um, some, of, some of you watched online, some of you didn't. I considered re-preaching that message and decided against it. So I talked about foundational prayer. So when Jesus records this in Matthew as, as his, in his first public sermon, in its recording in Luke, it's in response to Jesus being asked the questions by his disciples, how do I pray? And I find that very poignant because they would have been very familiar with prayer. Right? They, they would have been familiar with prayer. They were raised, they were raised in the temple, okay? So they would have known prayer. But what they knew of prayer and how they saw Jesus respond out of prayer, there were two different things. And so they saw the kind of power in which Christ operated in and in which they did not operate in. So they were cured. They connected the dots, interestingly enough, that he prays by himself a lot. <laughs> so can you teach us, because we've heard you pray, 
Can you teach us the peace that we don't hear you pray? All right? So our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins, as we forgive those who are in debt, who trespass, who sin against us. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. I've been singing it around the house. I was prepared totally to sing it by myself last Sunday. I was. I practiced. My wife urged against it. Um, so I show up Sunday morning, and I, to, to, it was a small team Sunday morning, and Mike and Eric, I said, hey, um, have you guys, can you pull this off? And then I said, I'm ready to do it by myself. And they decided they would try to pull it off. And, uh, and I think it was one of the more solid messages I've ever preached around prayer. But any comments I got online or personally afterwards were just how good they sounded singing. <laughs> and they're agreeing right, right in front of me. Thank you. So, um, you know, it, it, the foundational piece of this is we don't pro- approach God as a distant deity. We approach him in relationship. But he's not our sugar daddy. So we approach him with honor and reverence and worship, all right? So our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, right? Um, I, want, I want what I want. Let me say it differently. I want to align my wants with God's wants. I want to align my heart with God's heart because I know God sees and knows and does things differently than I do. Just, 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 it's just that way. And when I'm aligned with God, life is smoother, Right? And it's not that we avoid you know, um, uh, potholes and bridges out or any of that, but I have him with me when my heart's aligned with him. Um, when I am my provider, I come up short. When I know him as provider and I go ahead and ask him for provision, this is where provision comes from. It doesn't come from me, it comes from him. When I put myself in a position to ask him for daily provision and not just when things crop up, you know, there's a difference. And so when I look at him for daily provision then he, I put him in that position of provider and then I am as a steward and I'm a receiver, all right? Um, I, you know, I may be the only one in the room, but I'm pretty sure I didn't meet every one of God's expectations last week. Yeah, everyone's quiet, but I see, I see little head nods and head bows, right? So listen, we are covered by the blood of Christ, like we're saying that God sees me through the righteousness of Christ, okay? And so there's, a, there's an a theological term called sanctification. It means to be made whole and right and clean before God. I am whole and right and clean before God because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And I am still becoming whole and clean, right? And so for, for me to pray, to have this part of the foundation, part of my prayer is an acknowledgement that I am sure I did not line up with everything with you this week. And I ask, I ask you to forgive me. It's, it's not a salvation forgiveness. It is I am still working this out acknowledgement. And it brings to my attention, plenty of people have sinned against me this week. And so as I understand the forgiveness of Christ, it translates to the forgiveness I give to others. The least I understand about forgiveness in Christ, the least I forgive others. Right? This is why it's a foundational piece of the prayer. Lead me not into temptation. You know what? So it's, it's, a, it's a hard play on English, but God doesn't lead us into temptation. In fact, none of us need any leadership other than ourselves. 
right? So what the prayer really is, is protect me from my leadership. You, you go before and you lead me in different, you lead me in different directions, right? Lead me not to temptation. Deliver, deliver me from evil. There, there, is, there is someone who plots against us regularly. To, to, to not acknowledge that is, the, is to give the enemy an unfair advantage, but when I, when I recognize that he plots against me, then I am more aligned to know how to pray against him. Right, and so Jesus teaches this through this prayer, um, this foundational way to pray. It wasn't that when Jesus prayed, when we have recorded prayers of Jesus, it's not that, right? He doesn't stand up and pray that, but this is a foundational piece of how all the other prayers for him arise. That's how I read it out of Matthew 6. So that's how I taught it out of Matthew 6. Um, so Chris Hodges, Pastor Chris Hodges, I gave, we gave about 80 of his books away the last two Sundays on Pray First. And in this, it's a book on fasting and prayer. He says this, prayer connects us to God. Fasting disconnects us from the world. And I find that to be so, so true. All right. Prayer connects me to God. Fasting disconnects me from the world. But here I'm going to add to his, I'm going to add to his quote to encompass giving because that's what we're going to teach on today of one of those three practices. So mine would be prayer connects us to God, fasting disconnects us from the world, and giving aligns my heart with his. And giving aligns my heart with his. So here's how he begins Matthew chapter 6. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the consistent theme through giving, praying, and fasting is Jesus promises there is a reward in those regards. So here's some giving observations out of, the, out of the shoot from that. That there's a right motivation, a wrong motivation for all three of the actions he outlines. There's a right motivation for giving, a right motivation for prayer, and a right motivation for fasting. Which means that there is a wrong motivation for giving, there's a wrong motivation for prayer, and there's a wrong motivation for fasting. And I would say that our motivations represent our heart. And when our heart's aligned in the right way, then God rewards that. When our heart is not aligned in those ways, our reward is just what comes to be, comes about by itself, all right? Um, so the practice righteousness to me is a very interesting term. To me, it means uh, acting in alignment with God's standards, and that takes practice. So, someone just say something. Okay, I know I've already put you on edge because I told you on the front end I'm talking about giving. All right, so, so it is something you have to practice. This is stuff that's practiced, right? Because it's not ours. The righteousness is Christ. So it doesn't come naturally. It comes supernaturally, but it's something I can practice. He's given me the power and the path to practice righteousness, all right? Second giving observation is that giving is a normative, a normative Christian practice. He begins when you give. It's the same way he begins with when you pray and the same way he begins when you fast. These are foundational spiritual practices, but it feels like it's the boot and not the little shoe and that we can leave off to the side because it feels more earthy than the others feel more spiritual, all right? But that's not how God sees it. So the third observation is that God rewards right giving. 
Now, the rest of Matthew 6, it's interesting. It elaborates to me, it elaborates over the giving piece, not the prayer and the fasting piece. So he lists the giving, praying, fasting, but then the rest of the book of Matthew, the rest of the chapter of Matthew is outlining about the giving piece. Um, you, this, you might find this interesting that the Bible has approximately 2,350 verses of scripture that are around the concept, the idea of giving. Twice as much about faith and prayer combined. Jesus' recorded words, um, he spoke more about money than both heaven or hell. 15% of Jesus' words deal with money one way or the other. And so it begs the question, why does God spend that kind of time and energy discussing assets? And here's my conclusion. Because he lived in our world and in our skin, and he knows our lives are foundationally impacted by what we believe about money. And I'm glad the Bible addresses it in such clear and transparent ways. These two bullet points are important. What we believe about money impacts how money makes us feel. In my premarital counseling, there's a section where I have the, the, both the, the husband or the, the, the pre-husband and the pre-wife talk about answering a bunch of questions about money because at the end, you add up your score and it reveals what money means to you. Does it mean security to you? To you? Does it mean joy to you? What does it mean to you? Because what it means to you is going to impact what you do with it and how you make it. All right, so the second piece is what you believe about money impacts how we make and use money. All right? That's all right. It was just as quiet as nine o'clock as it is 11. I'm, I'm okay with that. So, so after Jesus lays out these thirst, three first react, uh, righteous acts, actions, now he goes, so he's dealt with the heart of it uh, or the practice of it, the act of generosity. Now he deals with the heart of it. So here, let's read Matthew 6, 19 through 24. All this rest will be out of the NIV. So always feel free, please, to open your Bible or read on the screen. So Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy. Isn't that descriptive? And when thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body would be full of darkness. If then the, the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now, now he's talking about money. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Very straightforward. Here are some money precepts I pull out of this. One comes verse, from verses 19 and 20. Earthly stored treasure erodes. Heavenly stored treasures are eternal. Now we know this practically, don't we? That what we have now, it erodes. Uh, right before Christmas, our washing machine decided it no longer wanted to serve our family in that capacity. <laughs> and so it had to be replaced. I think it had discussions with our dishwasher because... Because two weeks after that, our dishwasher decided to also end its current contract. And, and it died as well, right? The thing, it's not that thing we, the things we put, invest in now are bad things. The thing is, they just erode. I, I mean, can you even see Jesus saying moths and vermin? 
right, in a teaching. In moths and vermin, these things that we put stock in here, these things aren't necessarily bad things, but these things will erode. And yet, there is a place where we can put them where it will not erode. These are foundational pieces. Verse 21, that some of you may know by heart, for where your treasure is there your heart will be also, I write it this way. Your heart abides where your treasure resides. Your heart abides where your treasure resides. You want to know where your heart is? Track down the address of your treasure. And it is a clean indication of where our heart is. Verses 22 and 23 is an interesting kind of metaphor that he puts in here. I write it, and when he talks about if the eye is dark and the eye is light, I say healthy seeing results in right living, and light living. Healthy seeing results in light living. When I see money properly, it results in me living light. Unhealthy seeing results in living in the dark. When I don't see it biblically correct, then it has a negative input impact on my life, and then that becomes my lens by which I see other things. The last, both money and God are masters. That's my takeaway there. Would you have ever said it that way? Both money and God are masters. They're masters. They carry weight as masters. But he says you can't split your heart. You can't split your heart. About 15 years ago, I taught you this precept about money. And it finds its way through, um, I'll pull up Facebook on occasion and I'll see someone who had taken a picture of it and quotes it again. But it was, money makes a great tool, but a lousy boss. God makes a great boss, but a lousy tool. So what we do with money is a big deal. Not because God needs our money, but because our lives are significantly impacted by where our heart is. And that's why he addresses it. So let's go on. He talks more. Uh, Matthew 6, 25 through 34. Therefore, okay, so we just looked why it's therefore. So therefore, because of that, I tell you, don't worry about your life. What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? My word would be anyway. See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, always splendor, was dressed like one of these. And I'm telling you, bells would have went off in the hearer's eyes on that hillside. They would have had a complete understanding of the, the dominance and the decadence of Solomon. Okay? Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, always splendor, was dressed like one of these. That's his visual picture. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, tomorrow sown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you you of little faith. So, don't worry saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you have need of them. But, seek first his kingdom, first practices, and his righteousness, his ways, and all these things will be given to you as well. Seeking first produces God, all this other thing as Well, um, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, 
for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Isn't that a true statement? Isn't it interesting? You can almost work this backwards. So each day has enough trouble of its own. Why would we want to add to it? (laughs) It's going to have, it's bringing its own trouble. Okay, so let's not give it a head start. I mean, that's another way to look at it. Here are some precepts that I pull out of that passage. When we fixate our eyes on life's needs, our worry goes up and our value goes down. Right, because he says, don't you know that your father, don't you know your father loves you more than these? So when I fixate on, on the worry and those problems, right, or when I fixate on the, on those, on the money, the, the, our life's needs, worry goes up, value goes down. And when we fix our eyes on God, our worry goes down and our values go up. Our value goes up. Does that make sense to you? Yes. All right. That's 20, verses 25 and 26. Verse 27, um, worry has zero ability to impact outcomes. How, how, would, how would your day tomorrow change if we lived like that was true? Worry has zero ability to impact outcomes. That's a game changer. And, and, but in the passage is couched around money. So let's put it there. How would your life changed if you removed money as something you worry about? Stand for the benediction. <laughs> Third bullet. Replace worry with trust. God is a much better provider than we are. Verses 28 and 30. Pagans chase provision. So it would, it's a word used there. Now, a pagan would be someone who doesn't worship or follow God. Okay, that's a simple definition. A pagan chases provision. Christ followers chase God. I mean, I, I hear Jesus saying, would you please differentiate yourself from everybody else around you? in your actions towards money. Faithful chasing gives us one less thing to worry about. All right, so simply put, I could have started, I could have started here, but it wouldn't have been near as uh, fun to do. Um, three things not to do with money. Matthew 6, 19, 34 tells us three things not to do with money. One, don't worry about it. Trust God. Number two, don't worship it. Worship God. Number three, don't serve it. Serve God. That was pretty good, right? Now, why? Why would he teach us that? Because financial provision and security are not built on our assets, but they're built on a firm foundation of hearing and obeying Jesus in all matters of life, and get this, especially money. All right. We do a good job around church world telling people what not to do. Does the Bible tell us anything of what to do with money? Well, I'm not gonna be able to cover the 2,350 verses. But the people who worked in the nursery and kids accused me after the first service that I tried. (laughs) You'll get it in the back. It'll roll. It'll get back there. Here are four money to-dos out of Scripture. One is diligently work for it. Diligent work for it. One of my favorite passages of Scripture in all the Bible. I love every chance I get to say it out loud. Here it is. Go to the ant, you sluggard. I love saying sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler, yet it stores provision in the summer and gathers its food at harvest. How long will you lie there, you sluggard? 
when will you get up from your sleep? A little sleep and a little slumber and a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come on you like a thief and scarcity, scarcity like an armed man. That's pretty descriptive. All right, so what do we do with money? What does God tell us to do with money? Diligently work for it. Here's the second one. Don't waste it. Don't waste it. Here's Proverbs 21.5. The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance and advantage, but everyone who acts in haste comes surely to poverty. And I don't know if anybody says, yeah, I waste money. I'm a money waster. I'm good at throwing money away. You're right. I don't know. Most people are going to boast about saving money. I can save money. I can find the shortcut. I can do whatever. Um, the challenge here is to track your spending over 30 days and then look at that and go, what have I done with my money? I will tell you that I don't carry very much cash and it's strategic. Because if I have cash, I'm going to find somewhere to get a chocolate milkshake. For some reason, whether I want one or need one, or whether I need one or not, and I do believe that I can make a case for why we need milkshakes, um, but I'll go, oh, wait a minute, I've got cash. And so I know my propensity, I can't, I don't track cash well, but I track debit purchases well because I still physically balance my checkbook every single month. And then you look at it and you go, so that's where it went right? So wasting money to me is, um, is a way, you know, he's saying don't waste it. Plans of a diligent, diligent to me, then I'm going to plan. I'm going to plan my money. Here's the third. The third is to wisely steward it. Wisely steward it. We're stewards, not owners. And this is very important. As an owner, we're only going to be so good. There's only so good that you can be as an owner. We're all going to be limited at some capacity as owners, Okay, because there's, there's more wisdom needed for ownership, right? There's, a, there's a more knowledge needed for ownership. There's more information needed for ownership, right? But I can be a great steward, right? Because stewards just do what they're told to do with the resources God gives them. So to me, there really is no limitation on how good of a steward I can be because all the information then gets provided. It is what will I do with the information Given. One of the best uh, passages of scripture to me that illustrates this is when David has now gained provision to build the temple in First Chronicles. And he's gathering it all and he gives of his personal wealth to this project. And in his prayer, after all the provision was collected, this is what he prays. Listen to how many times he says your or yours to God. He says, and this is a guy who gave so much money, it was weighed, (laughs) right? It wasn't counted. It was weighed, all right? So yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head of over all. Wealth and honor come from you, you are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. Then I love his shift. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you 
what only comes from your hand. I mean, David is teaching us what it means to be as the heart of a steward. This one is yours, Lord. He tells us to work diligently for it. The scripture tells us not to waste it. It tells us to steward it. And then it also tells us to generously give it. Generously give it. Here's Jesus teaching that Luke records, give and it will be given to you. And you know what? If that was all it said, there's enough for us to go on. My, my brother and I, we, uh, brother-in-law and I, early on, when we would buy you know, gifts for one at Christmas, I guess he did the math once and said, listen, let's just save us the energy because you buy a gift and give it to me and I buy a gift and give it to you and they're about the same equal amounts, but you have to go shopping and I got to go shopping. How about if we just don't give each other any gifts anymore, right? Because he was doing the math. The math says... I'm giving it to you, you give it to me. But you know, if that's enough, at least I'm not out, right? I didn't give you a gift and you didn't give me anything. And now I'm, right? If that, if that was enough, we could go on that. But Jesus goes further. He says, give and it will be given to you, but not just given to you, a good measure. I love good measure. A good measure. Now, um, you know, Annie and, and Brady have, um, my, my son-in-law and my daughter, have, they have two golden retrievers that my wife adores. Um, golden retrievers over time can get, can get, fat. And my, my son-in-law is concerned about this. And so he, he tells my wife, and they were in the first service, so I, 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 they, here I know until the story. He will tell my wife specifically how to feed Maverick and Goose. And so he takes a scoop of food, and he will level that scoop off. That's a scoop of food. Now, that language does not compute with my wife. <laughs> to my wife, a scoop of food is how much can you pyramid up on that scoop in order to give it to the dog because she wants the dog happy, right? So it is a, it is a heaped spoonful. That's, that's what I read here. He's not, God, God's not looking for a, a, a tit for tat, a dollar for a dollar. He's, he's not looking to balance the budget sheet. He's out to reward the heart of generous givers. Can, can, you, can you be excited about that? Good measure, not just a good measure, press, press down, because you want to create more room. Kind of pressed down, shaken together, and it's okay if it runs over a little bit. And it's poured into your hand. Is that what it says? What does it say? Okay, I don't know about you. My lap is exceedingly larger than my hand. Right? And so I'm going to pour it in my hand, pour it into my lap, all right, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. It's amazing. Generosity is an alignment feature. It aligns our heart with God. Um, uh, later in the year, I'm going to teach deeper on rock-solid finances. My goal today was to try to give you enough first information to begin acting on. Um, if Jesus lists in Matthew 6, giving, praying, and fasting first, there has to be something significant to his order. Right? And I think he addresses it because it's the thing that we want to protect first. We want to prevent. Um, I recently asked, I was asked by a young lead pastor, um, why did I think that people don't tithe? And if you're unfamiliar, a biblical tithe is a percentage, it's 10%, and it comes in a priority fashion, it's the first. He said, why do you think um, people don't give? So my I had great answers, and I'd let them have them fast. One was, um, there's too little effective teaching around giving, around money. 
Every one of you, including me, was taught about money by somebody. We were all taught about money by someone. I, I got to be very fortunate because my mom and dad were number people. And with that business, I was involved. I love numbers. Numbers excite me. They don't scare me. I like, I like numbers. But all of us are going to be taught about money by someone. Let's think about it. What does culture teach us about money? All right. Culture teaches us about money that we're number one, that money is here to serve me. That's what culture will teach you. All right. Um, even, even our current cancel woke culture wants to teach you about money. Here's what they want to teach you. If you have it, if you have it, you did not earn it and you do not deserve it. Someone else does. You're, you're actually, you actually, what you have is actually at the expense of someone else. That's what this culture wants to teach you about money. Okay. Companies want to teach us about money. What do companies want to teach us? Companies want to teach us that we cannot live without what they have. My favorite years ago was McDonald's had a very successful campaign that said, um, you deserve a break today, right? It resonated. It still resonates, right? Because there's, we all, it's true, right? We all, we all who, who does not want a break tomorrow? Anybody, right? So we want a break today. Yet here's the thing about marketing. What they offered was a Big Mac. So there's always going to be a, a, a discongruence, if you will, between they identify the need that we have or the need that we want or how we want to feel, and that one's spot on. But then what they promised does not actually deal with what they promised, right? So the promise is if you just have the Big Mac, you're going to feel so much better after the Big Mac, said no one ever, right? <laughs> so no one ever. All right. So we all are going to get taught about money from somewhere. Is someone being actually um, teaching us properly around that. I remember my pastor in Atlanta taught a, a, a significant, significant series around giving one particular year, and I was out to lunch with a new family, uh, the dad at church, and um, he said, man, I really appreciate Pastor Mark's series about money. And I went, really? You did? He said, yeah. If the man wasn't going to address what the Bible said about money, the man doesn't care about the rest of me. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it um, about teaching. Now listen, the, the challenge would be saying, well, pastor's teaching about money day in January because, you know, they probably had a rough year financially. Last year was our best giving year ever in 16 years of Gateway's existence. Best ever. So what I'm not teaching today, and I'm not following this up with an offering, right? For anything, from, from a missionary to anything, Okay. This is, this is foundational first practices that God knows a road left up to the wrong teaching. All right? All right. The other is too easy debt. Too little, too little or effective teaching and too easy and too much debt. I got my first credit card when I was 18 years old. I was 18 years old. I wanted a credit card. I wanted a debit card. They were first coming out. The, the, our little bank of Mid-Jersey down the corner had an ATM machine. All my mom and dad knew is you put a card in, you get money out. And they said, we do not want to give our son like that. You know, it's like, he, th there is no way this works out well. If we give our son a card and he puts it in the machine, it gives money. This is not going to work out well. So they went, let me do that. So I filled out at work one day, I filled out the credit card um, uh, application for uh, Exxon credit card. Now, granted, I mean, it wasn't Nordstrom, right? I'm not going to get in trouble that much with an Exxon credit card. But it was amazing to me, amazing to my parents that an 18 year old making $6 an hour qualified for a credit card. 
And now it's even worse, isn't it? Way too easy, way too easy to get credit. Why, why does credit hurt us? One, it hurts us because most of the time we don't have enough discipline. We don't have enough discipline to handle. We don't have enough discipline um, uh, for a delayed gratification. Because that's really what, that's really, in, in, in a lot of cases, debt is, is, is a way in which we get around waiting and saving for something, which we would say is um, delayed gratification. But can I tell you that all of our delayed gratification is making certain people very wealthy. In 2022, $164 billion was made by credit card companies for fees and interest. $164 billion with a B. So anytime that my delayed gratification overcomes my wise actions, I am, you say, well, no, 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 I do earn Potentially, somebody's not, not using enough discipline for $164 billion to go to a credit card industry, right? So not enough discipline. The second reason why um, there's, uh, debt impacts is because it, it shows that there's not enough saving. And we're not saving enough money, okay? So um, my mom was a saver. My mom had a phrase, I've used it for a lot of years. My mom said, that money, uh, a problem isn't a problem if money can solve it. Problem isn't a problem, money can solve. And I always told her, I said, yeah, Ma, because you got money, right? My, my problems, money can solve, <laughs> right? We, could, we can make a list of the problems that money can solve, right? But she said money isn't, the reason why is because my mom was a saver. She saved for um, short-term things. She saved for middle-term things that were gonna happen out in the future. She saved for long-term things. Before she died, she told me to go to the house. Now, she's in the hospital. She's dying of lung cancer. And on one particular day, she had me come in with a three-ring binder that she directed to me to where it was on the shelf. I brought the three-ring binder to her. She asked everybody else to leave the room. And so we sat down and we went through her three-ring binder, which had every place where they had money saved. Now, when I went through it, she had CDs. That's called a certificate of deposit that we haven't known what those are in a while because they didn't pay you anything, right? So she had CDs in North Carolina. She had CDs in South Carolina. She had CDs in New Jersey. So everywhere that possibly we had lived, she had certificates of deposit. So I'm going through them, and I'm like, Mom, I can't manage all these different places that you have money. I told my dad, Dad, I can't help you manage this stuff because it's all over the map of where all this is. And besides, Dad, these aren't good investment tools. And I, would put, I got deeper in the weeds. I said, look, Dad, this one CD is paying 8%. Dad, we're going to leave this one alone. And then, and, and that's what happened, right? Um, she was a saver. Debt impacts our saving. No, saving impacts our emotions, right, of what God's given us. The third, or a part of that, um, of why debt ends up being a default is just, in some cases, not enough income coming in. Right, you say, Pastor, I work hard, I do, there's just not enough incoming in. One, I'd always kind of challenge um, our lifestyle to match what we're earning. Uh, it's always a healthy thing to look at, okay? Um, but if there's not enough coming in, that's a legitimate thing. So how do you change that scenario? I think the easiest the, 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 or the lowest hanging fruit is to become indispensable at your current job. If you will work like that place could not exist without you, then pretty soon they're going to realize that place cannot exist without you. And it's a competitive job market, and they will pay you to stay. 
Make yourself indispensable where you are. Work diligently. Not the quiet quitting that we've gone through for the last couple years. Okay, not just doing enough to still keep your job because that's going to change really rapidly. Um, get different training. Get different education. Add a side hustle. You just, who are you around? That there, there is a way, there is a way to stay out of debt. One of those is to hustle. And then here's the, so I two effect, two, two little, two little teaching around money, too easy debt, and there's just too much fear around money. It's just too much fear. We're, we're afraid of numbers, we're afraid of this. So fear keeps you away. You realize this, right? When you are afraid of something, you stay away from it. When you're comfortable with something, you get knee deep in it, okay? So, so we've got to eliminate some fear around money. Um, here's what math, math teaches us this. 100 minus 10 equals 90, and 90 is always less than 100, right? But supernatural math says 100, 100 minus that 10, that 10% equals 90, and with God, 90 is always greater than 100. This has been my experience, my lifetime, from as a kid on through. When God can do more with 90 than I can with 100. The, the math, the, the math works. Um, I know that our, you know, my accountant would say, I give too much money. And he has said that. <laughs> and, and he says, and, and our culture teaches us, you can't possibly live on less. Now, show of hands, you make more money now than you did five years ago. Raise your hand. Okay. So we've all proven you can live on less because you're all here. You did it, right? And so the math, we, got, we can't be afraid of the math. The only way to eliminate fear around giving is to give, <laughs> right? Because that's the only way in which then things start changing in our world financially, and that's how we build faith, by practicing. Faith is not a static set of beliefs. Say that again. Faith is not a static set of beliefs. Faith is a practice. This is something you have to practice. That's why I talk so much about Satan's out to destroy you spiritually and financially, and his primary method is to keep you in the dark, alone, and afraid. And these are three places none of us want to be, right? We never want to be in the dark, we don't want to be alone, and we don't want to be afraid. And that's what he wants to do around money. All right, so what have you heard from God this morning? What have you heard about God this morning, from God this morning? How is he using this message to ground you? What will you have to dig through? What layers are keeping you, if something is keeping you, from having giving as a first faith practice? I would say that the, bit, the best beginning place is to practice percentage giving and priority giving. At whatever percentage that you deem is possible in your current situation until your situation changes. Because to me, that because I'm making a choice. When I show up somewhere and, you know, and I, I pull 20 out of my pocket or do something else like that, that that's, there, there's a time for that. But for me to build giving as a foundation, a piece of my life and my family, I've got to commit that I'm going to do it first and I'm going to do a certain amount come hell or high water. This is what I'm doing. God, this is my foundation. This is my fleece. This is what I'm doing right? That is a place everybody can start. The second would be getting some coaching around money, right? It's, it's not, it's not 
uh, an embarrassing thing to say, I need help managing money. Now I'll say that sometimes as a man, it may be more difficult and has been for me because I'm supposed to be the provider, right? And so it can be maybe a little daunting because if I dig too deep in this and I realize that I'm not doing it well, then that's embarrassing. But the alternative is for me to bury my head in the sand and keep going down the same path. That actually is more harming, right? We, we, we taught faith um, or financial peace university here for years at the beginning and haven't had any in a while. Um, and, but if we needed, and if there was people that wanted to do it, we actually kind of know the guy who wrote the book and he works down the street. So I don't, I don't think it'd be very difficult to get a Faith Promise University up and going. But what I did do this week is go buy 20 total money makeover books. And so if, if you were hungry and I offered you 20 bucks, would you turn it down? I don't think you would. Those are $20 books, right? And the first service only took half of what was allotted to them. Fine. There's 15 books out there for you to grab one as a gift from Gateway for you to get a handle and you should not be embarrassed to go grab a book. Um, okay. How many in the room, show of hands, um, you have been a personal witness to God's providing power because you have made giving a priority in your life. Raise your hand. So this is the testimony. This is not theory. It's not propaganda. It is from the word. The people who raise their hands believe this particular passage in Malachi. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven. It's interesting. Every time Jesus talks about generosity or the Bible talks about generosity, they use generous terms. I will throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will be not room enough to store it. He doesn't want us to tear down barns and big build bigger barns. He wants us to let that flow into other people's lives and help transform them into this relationship and this reality that God does, right? So it's not this verse is not saying, well, you do this and then just go get you a bigger house because you're gonna need more room for your stuff, right? That, that's not what he's communicating. What he's communicating is I will pour out and in that abundance, you will pour out. The kingdom will be expanded. It will, I will prevent pests from devouring your crops. The vines of your fields will not drop their fruit before it's ripe. Team, if you're hovering, come on. Says the Lord Almighty. So, here's the verse of scripture that I wanted to obey today. And this is Paul's admonition to his son in the faith named Timothy. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. This is Paul's admonition to his son in the faith, Timothy, to preach to the people. It is the truth of God that builds firm foundations, not just from now and for later. And here's how I want you to respond today. 
You might have come in with a completely different need today and that's why this side of the altar is always open for you to come pray if you wanna just pray by yourself. Communion's available to left and right. This is the sacrament of first giving. This is Christ who came and gave. The juice represents the blood of Christ. The cracker represents the body of Christ that we, we actually ingest God. Over here, and if it's a line, great, however you wanna do it, but I wanna... I want to pray over anyone who has finds themselves, you're in a financial bind situation, something that has just got you turned sideways. You have found your, however you have found yourself in this or something has found you in it. I want to pray for clarity, clarity and courage over you. This is not something in which to sit and be worried about what someone else is thinking. The offer from God is for the body of Christ, the power of his spirit and the word of God to integrate together for a miracle, for something that changes in your life. Gene and I were in a, early on in Gateway's life, we were at a church planning conference at a little church in Dallas, Texas called Gateway. Some of you don't know it, obviously, because you're not erupting at laughter. Um, I don't know, 20, 30,000 or whatever. And Pastor Morris stood up in that room full of church planters and just said, um, if you want prayer over the provision of your church, come forward for prayer. And we did not waste an ounce of time for Gene and I, our backsides were disconnected from that seat. And we were standing in front of that pastor praying and asking. And it was interesting because we, what we said was, we're, we're fine, things are fine but we want what God wants. And this place and you, we have, we've, we've never been in lack. There's always been more than enough to do what God has put in our heart to do. We've been generous with it. I can't, I can't even think of how many church plants we've given stuff. One this week came and we gave them something that they needed that we had extra of generosity just works so I'm not asking you to come forward to give anything but you find yourself in a position where a pastor, your shepherd or at least a place that you've popped in today is saying we want to pray for you for provision and clarity in your life and I want you to take advantage of that today so stand with me I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to move if I go over completely as long as I did in the first service and that's back-to-back services. It's going to cost me a lot of money um, um, and payment to them. So, Father, I, I've done my best to set the table. Um, probably too much information in too short amount of time. But I trust your spirit to do what only your spirit can do. So as your people respond to you in faith, Father, respond to them in kind. Press down shaken together and running over. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, let's move. We hope you were encouraged and challenged by today's message. Again, to learn more about Gateway Franklin Church, find us online at gatewayfranklin.com. Thanks for joining us today.